We're coming to the end of our study of 1 John, and I just want you to know, last week I was short. I may make up for it today. I hope that it's not the end of our consideration of this book. Last week we began with the question, why do you believe in Jesus? And John gave us some pretty compelling kinds of evidence that the Bible throughout history and before the Bible, God has declared what he was going to do. And then he sent Jesus who lived it and demonstrated and gave his life for us. And then since then, he has given the Holy Spirit so that we can see in ourselves changed lives and observe in others changed lives. Have you ever seen someone that you know change so drastically that looking at them can only be explained by the ministry of the Spirit of God? <laughs> Dear lady, we just baptized you, and she's like, yes. That's the testimony of the Spirit when we look at our hearts and say, God, that's not me. <laughs> Only you can do that in a reprobate like me. I often wonder, how would I get to be a pastor? And if you were to ask some of those ushers who chased me, well, it'd be hard to ask them now because they're long since gone. If you asked them, who's the least likely to be a pastor out of this children's group that you know? You know, who? they might say Greg Mawinney, and then they would say Doug Weber. If you're listening, Greg, sorry. I don't think they'd pick me to be a pastor. I certainly wouldn't have picked me to be a pastor. The last thing I wanted to be was be a pastor. Some days that's still true. Why? I don't know. Why did I not go the way of the world and follow some of my friends who were doing stuff that ruined their lives? I don't know. I wasn't smart enough really to figure it out. It was God who was doing a work in me, and that's really this ministry of grace that John is writing about and we're going to summarize today. Why do you believe in Jesus? Because the Bible declared him. Jesus came and lived in the flesh and died. And the Holy Spirit confirms what he's doing in us today. Those are three pretty compelling reasons. This morning, we're going to consider John's closing remarks in this letter, and they are that you may know that you're here. This is, this is the reason I wrote, that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're his. So we're going to read 1 John 5, starting at verses 10, verse 10 and ending at 21. If you can, or, and if you will, will, you stand with me as we read God's word. 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son have li has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has born, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God, open our brains, open our hearts that we might see the truth. And then, Father, give us courage to step into it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John graciously gives us his reason for writing, and it forms this great conclusion to the letter. When we write a letter, often we give the, the gist of the letter or the paper up front, and then we conclude with it at the end. In speech class or in writing class, we used to say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you want to tell them, and then tell them what you told them, right? So the beginning and the end are, this is what I want you to understand. The middle is the details of that truth, and that's what we have seen in this letter. John concludes by saying, I'm writing this that you may know that you have eternal life. And he began by saying, I want you to know what you know about who you know. So in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, John said this, that which was from the beginning, what beginning? The beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning, that never happened. In the beginning, before the beginning of time, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John's desire is that his readers, including us, as we are reading his word, know the fellowship that he knows with the Father and Jesus the Christ, the Son, through the Holy Spirit. And all that begins with believing in him. God has sent his Son, Jesus, to earth to make eternal life manifest to us, that we might see it. He put, his, he put that life, that eternal life on display. Jesus declared that life, displayed that life, and brought life to us. He gave his life that we might gain life from above. Believing in him is taking him at his word and casting our lot with him. It's placing our life in his hands. So when it talks about believing in his name, it's not believing in J-E-S-U-S. -S. It's not the name. A name stands for all that a person is. I was sharing in the first service, I've known Neil since I was five years old. 
He was older than I was, but he was there when I was running around through the foyer of the church. And I watched him as a high school young man. He's my uh, brother's age there. Uh, Neil's exactly 10 years older than I am. And my dad wasn't around, and so as I watched Neil and I watched some of those guys, a bunch of those guys now are all over the world serving the Lord, I watched them saying, they're the real deal. They love the Lord. They're the real deal. They're, they're men. Did you see that picture of him, by the way, on Facebook at his birthday? Dude, he was ripped. I mean, he was strong as an ox. And these guys used to carry logs around a camp, and they'd run chainsaws. <laughs> And I thought, God, I want to be like that man. That man knows the Lord. So over the course of a bunch of years, I've watched Neil. And so when you say the word Neil Anderson, I, I, I have a perspective over the long haul of, new, of who Neil is and has been and what he's done. So when I heard that Neil Anderson hit the psychiatric ward, my world went, the Neil Anderson is human. So when I talk about it, and when people say, man, you know Neil Anderson? Yeah, I know Neil Anderson. I've known him my whole picking life. And I admire him, but I know what he is. So, so his name, the name Neil Anderson, is more to me than just a name or a speaker at a conference. It's a man that I have grown to love and admire. <laughs> when Neil came to work here, she goes, you talk like Neil like he's almost a god or a hero or something. I said, exactly. <laughs> when we talk about believing in the name of Jesus, it's not just Jesus. I know Neil Anderson exists, but I know Neil Anderson. When we talk about believing in the name of Jesus the Christ, it's more than a name, it's more than a necklace, it's a being, it's a person, it's the reality of who he is and all that he has done, all that he is, all that he will be for eternity, that's believing and that God is worth me submitting my life to. Is he not? And isn't it foolishness or disobedience or the height of arrogance to say, okay, but I got this. I'll trust in me for my security. I'll trust in me for my satisfaction. I'll figure this out, Lord, and you come along with me. <laughs> and I think Jesus goes, no. I love you, but no. I'm inviting you to come along with me. But the choice is yours. Will you? Can you? And will you? Trust me. That's believing in the name of Jesus the Christ. And eternal life is not just in the hereafter. It begins now. It's life from above lived here and now. As we went through the Gospel of John, it's the... Stop that clock. Turn it over, Giles. Just turn that... <laughs> Look at it. He's like, no... He goes like this. Ooh. In South America, I bet they don't have clocks in churches. I know they don't in Ethiopia. And I just wasted another minute. 
It's life from above. It's life that's worth having for eternity. There is life that is not worth having for eternity. In fact, if the Lord granted us to live that life, it would be torment for eternity because we would realize all that we didn't have. You know the most dissatisfying life and life that will, will be most tormentuous? Is that a word? Dissatisfying for eternity? Life apart from God, which is a life lived of selfishness. You know why selfishness is so dissatisfying? It'll never be satisfied. It's consuming. It's always giving. It's always taking. It's always grabbing. It's like an addict who just starts with one hit. How long does that one hit satisfy? I'll, turn, I'll come closer if you turn the clock over. Till the next two you need. Right? And that's what sin does. It consumes. Selfishness is sin. And sin consumes us. And, and can you imagine selfishness among all the other selfish people with no ministry of the Holy Spirit to diminish that for all of eternity? Insatiable craving that cannot be satisfied. That's what John is saying I want you to avoid. <clears throat> and he says one of the benefits of knowing God like that is that when we come to God, he hears. He hears. We know he hears. Now, this is not like a husband hearing during the middle of a ball game or a wife hearing during the, mini, mini, the middle of Hallmark. There are times when I communicate very clearly to my wife and she swears I haven't. And vice versa. And I don't think it's fair when she asks me something and I'm on my computer or I'm watching a game and I grunt that she holds me responsible for that conversation. So I've kind of begun to think, ladies, listen to me now, ladies. If you don't get eye contact with your man, it doesn't count. And a grunt is not affirmation that you have communicated. They have to say, honey, I'm hearing you. Is this what you're saying? Men are like, oh, please don't put us there. And the second thing, <laughs> the second thing is it would probably help if you required an email or a text from us just to know that we had really gotten it. I want you to know that coming to God isn't like that. We don't have to try and gain his ear. When we come to God and we are his children, it's like we have his undivided attention. The other day, I can't remember who we were having dinner with. It was you, I apologize. But we were talking to somebody and my phone didn't ring, but it did that beep sound that meant I had a text. And I look at my phone and my wife's like, so you know what she did with my phone? She reached over, grabbed it, turned it over, and put it on the other side of her. I'm like, woman? You know what she was saying? Listen with your eyes and your heart and your focus to the person with whom you're sitting. We're so distracted. But when we come to God Almighty, our Father, he says, okay, Doug, 
What do you need? What do you want to talk about? Let's talk. You know what a privilege that is? Almighty, all-knowing God, that he can hear all of us at the same time, but he looks us in the eyes and in the eyes of our heart and says, let's talk. I'm listening. That's what John is saying. If you're here, you have his ear. And if you have his ear, you know that you have what you ask for. Caveat. If we ask what? According to his will. That's kind of the kicker. We tend to want to conform God's will to ours. If we ask according to his will, then we know we have what we ask for. And how do we know we're asking according to his will? Remember the series on the Lord's Prayer? This would be a good time for you guys to say, yes, I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Pray then like this. Remember the disciples came to Jesus and said, how should we pray? And he said, pray like this. It's not the words again. It's the heartbeat. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, not ours. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What's that prayer about? Us or God? God, it's about us honoring his name. It's about him wanting, wanting, us wanting what he wants. It's about God's name, God's glory, God's purposes. Praying according to God's will is to pray that God has his way. In one of our Bible studies this week, this is a phrase that I'm praying for us as a, as a couple, as a church, as elders and leaders of the church. A guy prayed, and I thought, suck that prayer right back into your mouth, buddy. God, have your way with Doug and Linda this summer. And then I thought, no, it's exactly what we want. That's what we're asking. God, have your way. Wanting what God wants brings glory. Wanting what brings glory to God brings our will in alignment with his rather than praying to try and bring his into ours. His will is the glory of God and building his kingdom with men and women conformed to his image. What I believe John is saying is, if that is you, you are his, you can count on him, he has you, and you will ask what pleases him, and he will respond by saying, you bet. Verses 16 and 17 are again discussed and rediscussed. It's this part about a sin that leads to death and doesn't lead to death. The bottom line is that we're to pray for each other and includes as we see people struggling with sin. Do you know anybody who struggles with sin? All of us. And yet while we know we struggle with sin, sometimes when we see others struggling with sin, what do we do? Condemn? Or sometimes we even rejoice. See, you're not the hot stuff you thought you were. So it's almost like if they stumble, 
we look better. And what John is saying is pray with those who struggle, pray for those who struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. I think he's talking about here the sin that sucks the spiritual life out of us. He's talking about spiritual life, but I think he's also referring to physical life. John has consistently said in this letter that those who have life will not continue in sin. What does continuing unrepentant sin do to a believer? Sucks the life out of them. You've heard the story of the pastor who's visiting a person in the hospital and he asks if they want him to pray for him and they go, uh. and so he leans over and says, is it okay if I pray for you? And he gets real close and he says, are you trying to say something? Get off my air hose. <laughs> Sin is like standing on an air hose and it sucks the very spiritual life out of us. We can say, for those who don't know the Lord, Sin <clears throat> condemns and controls. For those who do know the Lord, it blocks the flow of the power of the Spirit of God. And it's like we're trying to run a marathon with our air hose plugged. What John is saying is, pray. Pray for those struggling with sin. But for those who continue to live in sin that is killing them spiritually, you can pray that the sin has its way so that they will choose life. How do you think Jesus makes intercession for us? Or the Spirit of God makes intercession for us? Will God ever write, override our wills? No. He won't make us do what he asks us to do. So I believe, I've been wrestling with this and staying up at night. I believe what John is saying here is this. Listen, when you pray for people, I think this is what God prays. When we begin to walk into sin, I think the Holy Spirit says, God, will you remind them who you are, what you've done, what you offer? Open their eyes that they may see the reality of what the sin's going to do and what you offer. But, Lord, the choice is theirs, and you and I know it. So I don't think the Holy Spirit says, God, would you protect them from the consequences of their sin? I think that's what we do, particularly as parents, don't we? God, will you keep them from dunderheadedness? And when they're dunderheaded, would you, would you keep them out of jail? You know what I think the Holy Spirit says? Give them a belly full of themselves until they're starving for you. Let them get sick of their own lives and their own selfishness until they puke on who they are and crave you and only you. And I think that's what God tells us to pray for each other. Don't pray that the sin won't have the consequences, that it won't take away their spiritual life. Pray that it chokes them, the very life out of them, until they're desperate for breath. Because then they'll turn to God. John is not saying that we pray that we will never sin. He's already covered that in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who prays for us God's will. 
One of the things that we're finding in health studies, as I've been preparing for sabbatical, I've been reading books on spiritual health and physical health and emotional health. You know what the three killers of Americans are? It's not guns. Stress is one of them. But one is diet or lack thereof. It's that we don't fuel our bodies right. Second is supplement because the foods we get can't keep our body fueled. Our body will heal itself if you fuel it. The third one, the second one is exercise, lack thereof. The third one is stress. And you know what the primary cause of stress is? Unforgiveness or bitterness. It'll kill you and eat you alive. It's a doctor who's not saved, but he's probably going to be. And he said, I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus yet, but I'll tell you something. Everything Jesus said about unforgiveness and bitterness is true. It will kill you spiritually and physically. And that's a message not just for unbelievers, but for us. It's a killer. And what John says is those who are alive walk consistently in life, not death. They don't hold on to the life-sucking sin. They want to move away from it. It's not that we don't step into it. It's that we don't walk in it or walk towards it. And by the way, sin can cost us our physical life. Acts 5, I'm just going to give you some references. Write these down. They'll be in the blog tomorrow. Acts 5, 1 to 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And by the way, it's a New Testament story. They tried to lie to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened to them? God took their lives like that. Don't mess with this. There was an act of grace in their life. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Paul talks about him, the church turning one over to Satan who's walking and continue unrepentant sin. He will not bow the knee to God. And Paul says, turn him over to Satan that his flesh may perish, but his soul may not. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, we read it on communion, eating the bread and wine in communion unworthily ended in sickness and physical death for some. There are sins that kill us. In Hebrews 12, we're taught that God disciplines his children out of grace. Praying according to God's will is to pray like he does. It's not that God will override a person's will. It's that God will open our hearts and minds and that we'll choose to live according to what we know. If we're here and our spiritual lives sucketh, it's not God's fault. It's not that he hasn't provided everything we need for life and godliness. It's that we have substituted. You turn that clock back over. It's that we have substituted things for him. You know what becoming spiritually broken, which we sang about this morning, means? It means we realize how broken we really are apart from God. We have to recognize our brokenness. 
John goes on to say that everyone born of God doesn't keep on sinning. They're not controlled by sin. They're not owned by it. He talks about the difference between the world which owns the unbeliever and those of us who are owned by Christ. And he says, the evil one can't touch you. That doesn't mean he can't have any say in our life. It doesn't mean we don't come in contact with him. Jesus was tempted by him. What it means is he can't own us. He can't take control. Think of in John 10 when Jesus is talking about the good shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep hear his voice and he knows them. And then he says this, I hold them in my hand and no one can take them out of my hand and no one can take them out of my father's hand. He can't get you, but he can mess with you. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Why didn't God just say no? Because Peter had to realize how broken he was apart from God. God's grace was to let Peter mess up and face his own brokenness so that in his brokenness he might face the need of what God has for him. And that was the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Peter was an idiot, and he became a man of God. Who preached that sermon in Acts? It wasn't an elder. It was Peter. And he said this. The people said, shut up, or we're going to put you in prison. (laughs) And he said, Go ahead, but I have to proclaim the power of the one who has changed me. You can't do anything about that. Don't we desire and crave that kind of life? The problem is we can only have it when we let go of our version of it. We need to know the truth of what God says. And then John closes with this interesting commandment. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. (laughs) What? Did you just have a brain cramp at the end of your letter? It fits right in. He isn't talking about handcrafted statues. He's talking about anything that we place in the position of God in our lives. If we want to know the power of God, we can't substitute those things that capture our affection more than he does. It's anything that squeezes God out of the central position toward the margins of our lives. It could be stuff. It could be someone could be our families, could be our career, could be ministry. Neil said this morning that sometimes in ministry it's like grabbing a tiger by the tail. How do you let go without getting bit? That's why this church has said, Doug, you need a break. <laughs> and they're right. If ministry is more important than God himself, then ministry becomes an read this week this comment. Now, you got to think about it for a minute. The world is full of self-made people who worship their creator. Because if you're self-made, who's your creator? The Bible says that anything other than the absolute truth of who God is and his absolute provision for us and his absolute power is absolutely to be rejected. And the church is not immune to the disease of trying to make ourselves God and to make him in our image. Here's the bottom line, and we're going to look at it deeply next week. Are we actually his? We can know because it's obvious. 
What are we looking for, for satisfaction in our life? Who really runs our life? Are there things in our life that we hold on to because they make us powerful? Bitterness, anger, whatever. His Holy Spirit lives in us and he communicates with us. He causes us to love and pursue God. He causes us to love and pursue those who love God. And he causes us to love and pursue obedience. That's the evidence of who God is and it can be real in us. We don't do that in and of ourselves. It's an obvious result of his work. I'm going to close by reading the words of the song we sang to set up the message. Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall, the scandal of grace. You died in my place, so my soul will live. Not just in eternity, by the way, but on Monday. Oh, to be like you. Give all that I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you. Forever the hope in my heart. Death, where is your sting? Your power is as dead as my sin. The cross has taught me to live and mercy my heart now to sing. The day and its trouble shall come. I know that your strength is enough. The scandal of grace, you died in my place, so my soul will live. Oh, to be like you. Give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you forever. Oh, in my heart. Is that true of us? I, I want to encourage you. Please don't skip next week. If you have plans, change them. <laughs> Do whatever you can to be here because I believe we're in a very pregnant time in the life of our church. You realize this church is 25 years old in October. And so as we go away and you're praying for Linda and I, you're praying for renewal, but you're also play, praying for renewed vision. That's also true of the elders. If God has called those men to lead this church, then what's the renewed vision of who we're to be? 25 years ago, we set a course. Are we still on it? The pragmatic stuff may not be the same, but are we still on course to make disciples who make disciples and become disciples? So this summer for a congregation, we're praying this for us, Jesus. But we give all that we have just to know you. Are there things in our lives that God may have to pry out of our fingers? For some this year, you've lost things most dearest to you. Oh, that hurts. But is God enough? Is he enough? Jesus, we want to give all we have just to know you. 
So this summer, we're not taking a summer off, but we're taking a summer to revisit and ask, who are we in him? And what do we really want? If there's something that we want more than him, pursue it until we get a belly full of it. And then crave only him. Crave only him. Because all the rest is details, and we will suck dry whatever we're looking to fulfill us and come up empty, apart from him. And when we know him in that way, we will know that we know him because he will prove himself faithful. Father, we want to know you the power of your resurrection, but it comes by also knowing the fellowship of your suffering that we may fill up in our lives what is lacking in the life you lived, that we might participate together in who you are and what you desire which is greater and more satisfying than the things we try and latch onto. Father, as we close this letter and we look next week at the results of ignoring what you've said, may we wrestle with who you are and what you want to do in us and to us and through us, I pray individually and as your church in Jesus' name. Amen.